0: Welcome to 5th Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. Having begun his career at Eastill in 1978, CEO, Roy March, has weathered several economic crises. Roy joins us in today's episode to explore what makes this crisis different and to hear his thoughts on how the real estate industry will adapt to the unprecedented level of change brought on by this pandemic. Enjoy the conversation. Roy, thank you so much for joining. Um, I'm sure this has been a really unique time for you and really curious to get your thoughts.
1: Well, first and foremost, I'm dressed a little bit more like I usually see you than uh, you see me. So uh, <laughs> good to see you in your natural habitat. And
0: uh, and, and uh, by that same token, my, my hair is a little closer to you than you normally see me. Yeah.
1: Well, as you know, there are a couple uh, stories about me committing to not cut my hair until uh, the end of a, of, an, of a crisis or an opportunity. And as you can tell, I'm committed to it. So, uh, <laughs> You'll know when I get the haircut <laughs> that we're closer to the end. Um, but uh, thanks for having
0: me. Of course. Thanks so much for joining. And <clears throat> I guess um, to start, you've seen crises like this in the past, right? You, you've been through many cycles. Um, just at a macro level, what's different about this to you from your perspective? Yeah.
1: Well, um, um, one of the biggest differences is some aspect of our industry didn't create the issue all right and so when you you know I, I started in 1978 April 3rd actually was my uh, 42nd anniversary at East Hill um, uh, East Hill secured now and so I didn't really feel that because I was a youngster and an analyst and and uh, didn't really feel kind of the 82 but uh, by the time we you know got a little later into these various um, crises um, the savings and loan crisis um, that hit was about capital going into, um, candidly, um, you know, unreg, unregulated, um, construction, um, uh, because we had the Japanese yen 50%, you know, uh, off sale back in the late eighties. Uh, and then we had modern portfolio theory kick in with pension funds where, you know, they, they were there to, in order to get the performance, they were, supposed to get um, out of real estate, um, they were told that a direct ownership of up to 10% was the right thing to do. Now, nobody stopped to give them advice that they're supposed to do it over business cycles. Um, so it was a mad rush. And so we created that um, clearly in uh, um, um, the, the, the um, late 80s, early 90s. And then, you know, we, we had in, in the late 90s, we had the, um, you know, well, called the long term capital management adjustment. And that's, if, if you read the book When Genius Failed, um, you know, the smartest guys in the world, literally Nobel um, uh, Prize winners who had all the calculus figured out, but they just didn't have the standard deviations right. And when you have something that is off, Kilter and outside of those standard deviations, you end up with these black swan events that then have a a a cascading effect, negative effect. Um, So, in one sense, that was um, something that uh, was occurring, that was an unanticipated element in the currency and financial markets that ultimately created this. And then, um, you know, in 2006 and seven, you know, we we had uh, the big Crisis, which is that you know, financial technology got ahead of, uh, of rational uh, underwriting, and at the end of the day, um, whether it was residential mortgages and the fact that you know people thought that there was credit in diversification, and there is credit in diversification, but with all due respect to Damian Hurst, um, you know, when you have a pile of crap um, and you combine it, it's still a pile of crap. It isn't necessarily art, and so at the end of the day, um, we <clears throat> that that hit. Um, everybody, uh, you know, and it was a global financial crisis, but it was predominantly a U.S. and European-based uh, type of thing. Uh, and then we've had, you know, oil crises. We've had the Asian financial crises and all the rest. But this is the, the first one I've experienced where it's been truly a global impact. There's there's literally no one who hasn't been impacted by this. And to think that, you know, a, 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 in essence, a health crisis has now created an economic crisis that no one could have anticipated and no one knows how to deal with the balance between the value of human life and the value of human life uh, in a new economic environment that there's really only been one choice right at this moment in time which is to uh, in essence shut down the world in order to uh, get to a point where they can understand how to deal with the health crisis and I think that that that's the biggest thing is that it's a global um, um, pandemic that has created a global economic crisis. And so the pieces associated with it um, and how it comes back together again, I think will, uh, will um, you know, be, be interesting to watch and interesting to see. I think we, we, we sense some trends in it all, some of which are accelerated trends in the retail space, for example. Uh, which is, you know, that was an accelerating trend with e-commerce and, and, and not the advent of, but the stabilization establishment firmly of, uh, of e-commerce. Um, and then uh, how that impacted logistics uh, and shifting from, uh, you know, kind of a retail base into a logistics base. Um, as our good friend um, uh, Barry Sternlich said, um, you know, Retail, in its more traditional format, um, is like a very uh, elderly person with multiple pre-existing conditions. Um, So it accelerated, in many ways, kind of the demise of certain format uh, uh, retail, in particular. And it's accelerated um, logistics at the same time, uh, where... You know, we're seeing 30 million square feet by Amazon in the last six weeks, um, you know, signing three, four leases a day. Um, and it's not just them, it's Walmart, it's some of the other big um, grocers and, and drug companies and the like. So, um, you know, this has accelerated that. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, the no-fly and the travel ban and all that has put a tremendous amount of pressure on the hospitality industry, um, which was under some pressure um, um, to begin with. And so um, that's, that's accelerated that. And then on the flip side, uh, when you look at um, what was beginning to occur, which are these nodes of knowledge markets that were attracting innovation um, and uh, uh, in, in that innovation creating more productivity, not only in those markets, but uh, for, the, for the greater uh, good of the world, uh, in most part, um, th- that has probably accelerated as well. And what we're seeing is this quest for talent uh, at the end of the day to be able to, whether it's in, in, in uh, life science or whether it's in other technologies, all of which are beginning to converge, that's gonna get accelerated significantly, we think.
0: Um, and, or, and do you think, just on, just on that point, Roy, on the, on the, count of the localization of, of talent around these, these innovation hubs, one of the unique features, right, of of the crisis we find ourselves in is that there were these there were these, the the timing of it is unique in the sense that there were already yeah. these technology these kind of inexorable technology trends that were already underway, and it almost feels yeah. like we kind of just push the future forward. And yeah. you know, San Francisco, um, Seattle, uh, Seattle, ha- had Austin, big, Cambridge, Austin, New York. Yeah. Los Angeles had become these these tech hubs. And the premise was that you need these workers all together. Um, And one of the trends that we've heard a lot of discussion around is does the dynamic of demand for office space in urban centers change forever as a result of this? And I imagine you have a really unique perspective on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, and and listen, we're, we're actually, we were in, we were in the process. We just finished demolition and got stopped in construction for our, our office space in New York. And uh, so we spend a lot of time with space planning and interior architects and the like, and some of which are, you know, the leaders in the the space of uh, in in the um, um, space planning and architectural area. And bottom line is, um, uh, you know, you have two sides of the equation. One, you've got you know someone like uh, uh, Jim Gorman at Morgan Stanley saying, "Gosh, we can work from home, you know, forever." Um, and at the same time, they wanted everybody back to work in June. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't know which side of that equation um, is is going to win out. Um, and then when you talk to some of these uh, space planning folks that are doing work with these innovation companies, they're looking for an answer for What's going to be you know th- what's going to address the sentiment not just the physical um, health uh, and, and preservation of that for their for their uh, employees and partners colleagues so at the end of the day um, I, I think that there's a you know I'm, I'm having conversations out of one side of my mouth and then the other relative to what's this likely to look like um, the, the the best I've heard is that um, you know people aren't aren't Uh, are are looking for separation uh, at least in the near term Um, and whether that means more space um, with fewer occupied um, you know desks if you will um, or whether it's uh, creating these cycles rotations of people coming in that it could take as much space if not more Uh, you saw Eric Schmidt just came out and suggested that uh, there may be more requirement for office than not um, and then the, the flip side of it is, is that you know what we're doing is we're designing to be able to have full capacity and adjacency in the future, but um, separation in the near term. And, and, and that will be that we will pull out workstations and, and chairs and desks and things like that that create that physical separation um, for our people, but then we have the ability to put it back together again. And then there is the, you know, um, you know, it will create, we think, um, ISO uh, markets, submarkets and the like, um, based on people's desire to maybe be out of a totally urban environment and into a more suburban environment. And so commuting patterns will, will potentially change and that will change some of the local submarket market patterns. Um, I think that, you know, clean buildings, um, it's not just about, you know, being, being carbon Uh, efficient it's going to be you know the full ESG and it's going to be about everything from air circulation to elevator capacities and automation and all the rest that go along with it so I think that it's going to um, you know it's going to change that dynamic materially it's still unclear in my mind as to whether that means more or less um, because I don't you know we're this is the the experiments underway We, we are certainly a long way from knowing what the answers are
0: yeah. And I'm curious also, what, what are the cities, you think, that are, are long-term beneficiaries of just a, a change in work patterns? You know, the, the, the obvious names that we talked a lot about were, you know, the big NFL cities. But do you think a lot of smaller markets that are very attractive to, like, younger millennial workforces and um, knowledge workers that, are, that just don't need to do their jobs in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco, do you see any markets really benefiting long-term? Um, I,
1: again, I think that there are um, some less, um, uh, may, maybe less obvious uh, markets. And, um, in, in you, you know, I would suggest Austin is a very obvious market, um, but it may not, but it's not a huge market. A uh, Nashville um, is a market that we think, you know, quality of life, community, all the rest of it will play into it. I believe that that ultimately, um, you know, if you're if you're building a business, whether it's in and we'll talk a little bit about life science here, I hope, um, because I think that that is the big, big, big winner out of uh, all of this, along with logistics, um, that it's going to be an arms race for talent. And you're going to have to do whatever it takes to attract and uh, retain that talent. And if you look at kind of the trend of. You know what? What this has done um, in terms of VC funding and the like, with some of these smaller funds, where talent has left the bigger um, companies for that opportunity to do something important. Uh, those big companies are right now trying to harvest as many of that, as much of that talent as possible back into um, you know the fold, if you will. And I believe that um, there is a um, um, you know, a potential that the big winner is going to be people who have this life science intuition, if you will, because millennials want to do something important uh, with their lives, not just participate, uh, coming up with the next app, if you will, um, you know, for some social media thing. And that doesn't mean that there aren't influencers out there that want to do that kind of thing. But, but if you're a software engineer or a science, data scientist or someone like that, you want to do something, um, I think, good in the world. And I think this is this collision of, uh, of, uh, of science and uh, technology is inexorable. And I believe that it's going to get accelerated and it's going to be one of the most important uh, winners uh, for the world. And I believe for um, our real estate industry. And it's how do you house those things? So I think there's going to be a lot of focus on redevelopment um, to make sure that you've got the right format to house it don't and, and we have a sense as to what that is but the demand's going to drive that if you look at the early tech days um, everybody wanted uh, you know brick and timber uh, until you couldn't get brick and timber and then amazon goes you know uh, 30 40 stories in and creates its own ecosystem and all the things around it um, become important and the physical space isn't unimportant but um, the location uh, ar- around those, those drivers of innovation uh, become the most important thing. So I think places literally like Minneapolis, I think there are sub- sub-markets in Philadelphia, sub-markets, um, I mean, Raleigh's obviously a, a prime market, but you can go through and, and sort of see where these um, next generation uh, cities will be. And it's going to be a combination of lifestyle and, and, uh, and talent.
0: And, you know, one of the other big <laughs> sectors that has been uh, asymmetrically impacted by this is, is retail. And yep. retail also is a category where you were talking about Barry's comments before. And by the way, Barry's going uh, to be talking to Barry in the same format next week. So I'll be sure to bring that up yeah. with them. Um But what happens to retail just over the next 18 months? I'm just curious, if you were to... If you were to be like writing a movie script, um, what would be the plot of that movie over the next 18 months? Yeah.
1: It's always darkest before the dawn. Um, it It is, uh, you know, kind of pre-D-Day in many respects. I think that, um, I, again, you know, you've seen this evolution of, of uh, you know, native retailers that, uh, you know, were, were beginning to use the physical space as part of their, overall um, retailing um, uh, format.
0: You mean these, um, these, these digitally native brands that grew Disney up, up native online and now are yes. spending offline. Exactly.
1: And I, I again, um, if, if you look at the historical um, analysis of pandemics, uh, I mean, going all the way back centuries and it's different today, things happen faster and people either forget faster or, uh, remember longer. I don't know well, which side of that. Um, you're looking up Wikipedia you get to, but most of these things tend to be forgotten, uh, within 12 to 18 months, um, of coming up with either a treatment or a cure. And so, um, I think, I think it's tough to take what, what, what is, you know, critical and I want to say critical, but, but important retail, and I think the acceleration of you know taking 900 malls and people thinking that it was going to be 200, who we're going to be where we we're going to be in five years, that's been accelerated. And I think maybe we end up with 120 to 150 great malls, and and it's and it's a reuse um, of a lot of that space. And so I, I think the pain uh, in and it's in, in in the the revaluation of a lot of the retail will start trending towards. The redevelopment into other uses and and again i'm not talking about just taking you know parking fields and turning those into multi-family and single-family home sites uh build to rent sites if you will um but talking about legitimately reusing them as distribution hubs um you know there's going to be a whole new world around covenant um uh, acceptances if you will um, i.e these big boxes have. Have had these, you know, uh, covenant-heavy um, um, uh, control over their spaces uh, with these major mall owners, as they were the draw. Um, I think there's going to be, you know, a rework of a lot of that. I think we're going to go back to um, um, uh, rent uh, retail rents as more participation than base rent uh, in a lot of this, and I think that the whole, you know. Uh, the, the focus on, on profitability is going to have to be re-measured because of the ability to be able to bring in online um, store pickups uh, and, and uh, returns, if you will, and how does that get calculated, uh, you know, in the matrix of uh, a, a percentage rent and the like. Um, but I, I, I think that the, you know, retail's not dead. Retail, as we've known it, is quite ill. Um, and that there will be some of the some of the best malls will be great we're already seeing you know if if you look at uh, some of the uh, uh, you know what we'll call the essentials uh, providers whether it's grocery stores drug stores medical clinics and the like those folks have done reasonably well um, in this environment in more of a community type of environment open air so um, I think those will be you know continue to be opportunities where you know again it's going to come back to the why why do people want to you know shop there why do they want to recreate there why do they want to be there and the social distancing has just put a big you know question mark in it not all retail is dead um but um, um a lot of it's very ill
0: you mentioned participation rent and you know the the percent of sales that i think landlords are going to ask obviously more from from tenants and if you think about that, it, in some ways it is a equity relationship, right, around Correct. it aligns the interests of landlord and, and tenant. Um, and I agree with you, I think that's going to be on the rise. And last week we saw that Brookfield announced that yep. they're proposing to put five billion into yeah. large struggling retailers, which I think is, is yep. great. Um, and is again, another way of aligning interests, But How do you you see the relationship between landlords in the retail space and tenants changing? Um, It's been changing for a while, um, and in some cases, it's just curing the sick. Um, But to what extent is it just accelerating the growth of the the new emerging retailers that that can really be the new draws in the way that the big boxes are no longer draws for customers anymore?
1: Yeah, I I, I think it absolutely accelerates the trend um, and uh, takes a lot of the hope, if you will, out of retailing, as opposed to the practical delivery of retail as people want to consume it. Um, And I think that, um, again, it's um, inevitable that uh, retail owners are going to have to become partners with retailers and retailers are going to have to be partners with landlords. And, and, and if, if anything, what this has done is balance that, you know, equation and dynamic out. And it's going to be what physically needs to be there in order to, you know, accommodate the retailer that's going to be successful in this environment. And what are the things that aren't, you know, and, and candidly, a lot of the big boxes, you know, aren't, you know, department stores aren't necessarily drawing. Um, you know, as as they were the anchor, literally, uh, figuratively, the anchor to the retail story. Again, I think that um, there's going to be an ability to recapture some of that um, and take control over it um, and and, uh, find redevelopment. And and I believe with a lot of these locations, there's going to be distribution um, at some of these big boxes. These locations are fantastic. They just, there's, you know, one or two or three or five malls too many. And so how do you repurpose them so that you can deliver, you know, the best kind of outcome for the retailer, uh, at that location and the customer most importantly, where they, you know, they still, you know, will, um, desire having some experience. We don't know what that experience looks like right now, but it's gotta be a partnership. And I think that it's more in today than it's ever been. And if you look at, um, you go back in time um you know probably 20 years ago there there was a pretty big shift between people looking at retail space and looking at what the competitive market was for the retail rent and <clears throat> we saw a trend uh and, and and green street um if you look back at some of their research they'll 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 show there's a moment in time and it was a glendale uh, fashion mall um that um for the for one of the first times, the, the retail owners, uh, the mall owners were looking at things through one lens and the retailers were looking at things through another lens. And the retailers were looking at the profitability of a location and, and that location's ability to be able to pay rent. Um, they weren't looking at whether or not if they went across the street, they they could pay less. They were looking at how much profit could they make where they were. And so the affordability was some combination of rent and cam charges and and, and all that uh, that went into the overhead and there was a health ratio that people began to look at in terms of sales versus um all-in cost of occupancy and i think uh, that we're going to find that again um and, and, and it evolved where you know people moved into that space and could charge more rent for specific locations uh at malls that they own and leverage the other malls that they own that, that people wanted to be a part of. And I think that today, what's what's likely to happen is be, everybody look at what's the profitability of the retailer and their ability to be able to afford to pay rent. And what's the fair dynamic between the, the retail owner and the retail store operator um, in that balance um, in terms of affordability and may, being able to capture. Uh, and I think with technology today, we can capture a lot more of you know, what I'll call the online, inline, uh, near line, if you will, uh, pickup and, and returns that uh, we weren't able to find before.
0: And two more things I wanted to I wanted to ask you about. So two, two big categories. One is hospitality and um, the oh. other is debt. <laughs> so yeah. let's take hospitality first. So on the <clears> hospitality <throat> side, again, there was also – you know, technology trends that were pre-existing that were putting the hotel industry under threat from the short-term rental economy and kind of the the Airbnb ecosystem. Um, what does the hospitality industry look like? You think eighteen months out from today? What are we confronting?
1: Well, the 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 interesting thing about the hospitality market. Um, is uh, it, it, it's, it's obviously quite segmented from, you know, limited service all the way to luxury and resort. Um, and what I think happened right now is with, the, with, in essence, travel bans and shutdowns and everything else, a hotel, depending on what segment they're in, and depending on whether they're in a union city or not, um, the burn rate is roughly $1,000 to $1,500 per room per month right so um that's that's you know just you know to to in essence have it shut and and um and and to be there the average occupancy in a full service um to break even is around 40 to again 45 percent, depending on what it is and again if you go limited service it's not so high because you don't have the uh, amenities and all the rest um and for the very high end um, it, it's it's a lot higher occupancy. So um, the, the the big realization here is that it's not just about being over leveraged from a financing perspective. It's perhaps being more leveraged than you thought you were from an occupancy and operational perspective. So the 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 you know in in looking at where the world looks like in the next eighteen months, I, I think across everything that we're looking at every product type. Um, most folks believe that there's a cost of capital that because of all this quantitative easing will be out there for some period of time, lower for longer, if you will, for a lot longer. And with the Fed's commitment to be able to, to, to do that for as long as it takes to get back to fuller employment, if you will, and uh, and, and less worried about uh, inflationary trends, um, that cost of capital probably doesn't get changed as significantly as the underlying assumptions that go into how long you from from acquisition to disposition how long do you hold it and what's it going to cost you and what are you going to get in return again some basic stuff but fundamentally today most people are looking at full service hotels and suggesting that it, it, that 2020 is kind of a washout so you kind of capitalize what is an underlying cost of of holding that hotel through the end of the year and that in 2021 people are expecting somewhere around a 50% return to, um, you know, 2019 uh, and then 2022 75% and then kind of a full return by 2023. And again, depending on market and all the rest, and, and, and we think drive to resorts and drive to um, uh, and, and, and limited service are probably going to be more, Um, uh, early in the stages than the big box box group houses, which are likely to, you know, um, have more of an extended period of time to return. But I think that that and and then you look at the other side, you know, technology, Airbnb and all those things had, um, you know, this under assault. I think that there's going to be some adjustments that get made at least initially, you know, do you want to go into some stranger's apartment, you know, um, to uh, ultimately, you know, pick, uh, pick through the sheets and (laughs) do all the rest of it, whatever, whatever you need to do. Um, You know, there's going to be some hesitation perhaps in in all that before people begin to forget about it all. So I think that the demand, and and then the demand drivers on rev bar, there's going to be some people who, you know, are going to, have lower rates, um, early on faster to make sure that they get to their occupancies as fast as they can to cover their nut. Yeah. So I think it's going to, I mean, but the basic underwriting, um, of what it looks like, um, you know, is probably, is probably that, uh, you know, 50, 75 and a hundred percent over the next, uh, three years.
0: What about debt markets? What's happening in debt markets right now? Is anything being issued?
1: Well, yeah, the, the, um, so Uh, The triage uh, that started literally uh, now six, seven weeks ago, um, if you look at the wave, the first wave um, of of distress was uh, in the debt fund and mortgage-related space where um, people had set their balance sheets up with um, uh, repo financing that had margin uh, requirements associated with it and when the markets broke, again, you know, like long-term capital management, it was beyond any standard deviation calculation. Um, there were these margin calls that created a liquidity crunch, and this was this happened before the Fed was able to step in, but it created this massive disruption, um, people looking for liquidity. And- unprecedented amount uh i mean we we we, we what, what, what took 50 or 60 days back in um 2007 2000 or 2007 and 8 took one day basically um here in this last go round but the fed also responded extremely quickly but the damage had been done um you know based this, on the regular- this, was in, this was in
0: march roughly
1: correct correct march, in march. Uh, In March. So the the, the triage around liquidity and what I'll call the survival capital as opposed to relief capital um, began then. So the the debt funds, which were very um, much a part of the overall capital, uh, the debt markets, um, were under stress quickly um, and um, have been um, more or less out of the market. Now you can follow a Blackstone uh, mortgage re, uh, lending call today and find out uh, they're they're about ready to go out and raise some more debt. Some were better capitalized than others. Some were hit harder. You can talk to Barry about you know Starwood and his investment uh, you know post uh, meltdown um, into that. But that 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 part of the credit markets were under siege. Then you had the banks um, who went from originations to in essence dealing with asset management. These originators literally went from originating loans to taking borrower requests in for um, forbearance. um, And and again, anybody who had any exposure in commercial real estate to retail, hospitality, construction loans, there isn't anybody who is immune to it Were immediately put into, uh, in essence, asset management trying to respond to the fact that Lenders uh, or the borrowers were looking for relief, and that consumed them along with some of the programs that the that the federal government put in place: small business loans, PPLs, all the rest. All that was being processed through, you know, the banks themselves. So there was a tremendous amount of time spent um, away from originations, and that's beginning. That fog of war is beginning to clear a bit, and the CMBS market was pretty much out of business um and has been out of business it's had a backlog of deals that were originated in the first part of the year that we're prepping for coming to market that was put on pause until we could find some stability in the markets Uh, last just last week two deals were priced uh, that would indicate um, that the market for a 10-year standalone single borrower looks like it's about 320 325 ish right which is which is 100 basis points inside of the best rate we thought we could get, um, you know, but weeks before that. Uh, the conduit market looks like it starts with a four, but, but City and, and Goldman got off a conduit deal. And so, um, and, and we think that there's going to be downward pressure because these guys ultimately um, have to recover some of the losses um, that they've taken. But most importantly, they're in the business of uh, creating earnings through this product. So we think that there's going to be more of that, and it's going to be very, very, very much focused on long-term weighted average lease terms, uh, you know, super secure. So maybe go from 55 to 45 to 50 percent to kind of get to that rate. But that market is beginning to show, I'll call it a green shoot, not shoots um, per se, because you only have one of each of those uh, of of substances. And then you've got the life companies. Life companies, while they they too were working with forbearance requests and all the rest, they they um, have been um, reasonably uh, constructive. And again, the rates blew out even for the best stuff for the best sponsors in the, in the logistics space, which you know everybody agrees is um, probably best suited for uh, not only the, the the existing but the the longer term. Um, bottom line is, um, you know, they're constructive, 50% LTVs in the three, three and a quarter range um, around industrial. So there's, there, there's more than green shoots around that. Um, it's beginning to get constructive. We think that the financing market will come back reasonably quickly with all this liquidity sloshing around in the market. The big question is what does underwriting look like, Right. How, how do you, under, how, where do you, where, where does um, this um, stabilize relative to which tenants need what space um, and are willing to pay what rent in order to occupy the space when they're allowed to reoccupy? What does that look like now? And what does that look like, you know, in six months? And what does that look like in 12 months? And so... That's the real. We don't. We don't see cost of capital changing much. It's really going to come down to the underwriting. It's going to get very specific, and there's a bigger dispersion now, in terms of location, submarkets, tenants, and the like, than we certainly had going into this when we had a lot of liquidity, but for different reasons.
0: Well, Roy, thank you so much for offering uh, just your knowledge and perspective on all this. I'm sure you. Um, are just juggling a tremendous amount of E still. And um, this has been really informative. So thank you.
1: Well, I appreciate the opportunity. And, uh, you know, the, the, it's interesting because I've been asked this question. You know, uh, y- y- the, the one thing um, that uh, you can say is uh, that, you know, sentiment is the toughest part to anticipate right and the sentiment coming out of this is is really where we're, we're trying to take data points and divine a path of direction um, I feel like oftentimes I've got a dog and a cane um, as opposed to uh, and, and maybe maybe glaucoma and one one uh, one good eye but um, it's beginning to clear a little bit more and we can begin to see the direction of travel but sentiment is going to be the toughest thing for people to underwrite because it's it's a human trade human quality it's not something that that uh, technology can solve
0: and the rate of change of sentiment is probably unprecedented right even by oh eight standards so exactly well thank you appreciate the opportunity buddy yeah thanks roy thanks for listening to this episode of fly on the wall all of these episodes and more are available on our youtube channel To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.